Welcome back to The Good, The Bad and The Bogus. This is David Free, and this is the second part of my two-part attempt to answer once and for all the question of whether Woody Allen is or is not a child molester. Last week, I provided the basic answer to that question. He isn't one. I showed that the whole panic about Allen's perceived monstrosity comes down to a single allegation which emerged under very shady circumstances. I showed that the allegation was thoroughly investigated at the time by all the relevant authorities who concluded that Alan's accuser, his seven-year-old daughter Dylan, was not telling the truth and had probably been coached or encouraged to come up with her story by her mother Mia Farrow. And I finished that episode by asking a question. If Alan's name was cleared so comprehensively back in 1993, what exactly has happened since then to put this case so firmly back on our cultural radar? Why is the world suddenly so full of people who are convinced that Alan is guilty as hell? If the evidence back then wasn't even good enough to warrant charging him with a crime, has some fresh evidence come to light in the years since? Has he been accused of a similar crime by somebody else during the past 27 years? The answer to both questions is a resounding no. All that's happened is that Dylan Farrow is now an adult, and she's recently started to repeat her claim in the press and on social media, and with the aid of her influential brother Ronan, who is now a famous journalist and has been a liberal hero since 2017 when he wrote the New Yorker expose of Harvey Weinstein that launched the Me Too movement. So in this episode, I'm going to look at the way this meritless charge against Alan has fairly cynically been revived and relaunched in recent years after lying dormant for almost quarter of a century. And as I go along, I want us to remember and to keep noticing an important principle that I mentioned last week. If Alan really did this thing, then you would expect him to look guiltier and guiltier the closer you look at the evidence. And as we'll see again this week, what keeps happening in this case is the very opposite of that. The deeper into the particulars of this case you go, the clearer it becomes that Woody Allen simply didn't do anything and has been the victim of a massive stitch-up. The Phase 2 assault on Woody Allen's reputation began in October 2013 when Vanity Fair published a long and sympathetic profile of Mia Farrow. That story marked the first time that Dylan Farrow, who was then 28, had gone on the record as an adult. There's a lot I don't remember, she told Vanity Fair's reporter, but what happened in the attic, I remember. I remember what I was wearing and what I wasn't wearing. The following year in January, Woody Allen was honoured with a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Golden Globes. Mia Farrow weighed in at the time with a couple of rancorous live tweets. So did her son Ronan. Missed the Woody Allen tribute, he tweeted, did they put the part where a woman publicly confirmed he molested her at age seven before or after Annie Hall? A couple of weeks after the Golden Globes ceremony, Dylan Farrow published an open letter on the New York Times website in which she dissed actresses like Kate Blanchett and Scarlett Johansson for continuing to work with Allen. Her article also contained a fairly lengthy description of the alleged abuse incident, which included certain details she'd never before mentioned in public. One of these concerned an electric train set that was supposedly running in the attic while the assault went on. Here's what Dylan wrote, quote, When I was seven years old, Woody Allen took me by the hand and led me into a dim, closet-like attic on the second floor of our house. He told me to lay on my stomach and play with my brother's electric train set. Then he sexually assaulted me. He talked to me while he did it, whispering that I was a good girl, that this was our secret, promising that we'd go to Paris and I'd be a star in his movies. I remember staring at that toy train, focusing on it as it travelled in its circle around the attic. To this day, I find it difficult to look at toy trains. The detail of the electric train set sounds trivial, but it would turn out to be quite important, because it seems to have been this detail more than any other that prompted Dylan's older brother Moses to break cover and publish that impassioned but scrupulous blog post of his about the case, which he entitled A Son Speaks Out. Moses Farrow's essay is 5,000 words long. It's far more rigorous and persuasive than pretty much anything else that's been written about this affair, 
And that certainly includes the stuff that's been published about it by his sister and by his more famous brother. I want to read out what Moses Farrow said about his sister's new story, and in particular about the detail of the train set. This will be a longish quote, but it's well worth hearing. Here's what Moses writes, quote, It's a precise and compelling narrative, but there's a major problem. There was no electric train set in that attic. There was, in fact, no way for kids to play up there, even if we'd wanted to. It was an unfinished crawl space under a steeply angled gabled roof, with exposed nails and floorboards, billows of fiberglass insulation, filled with mouse traps and droppings and stinking of mothballs, and crammed with trunks full of hand-me-down clothes and my mother's old wardrobes. The idea that the space could possibly have accommodated a functioning electric train set circling around the attic is ridiculous, Moses says. One of my brothers did have an elaborate model train set, but it was set up in the boys' room, a converted garage on the first floor. Maybe that was the train set my sister thinks she remembers. Now, Moses continues, whenever I hear Dylan making a public statement about what allegedly happened to her that day when she was barely seven, I can only think of that imaginary train set, which she never brought up during the original investigation or custody hearing. Moses concludes this part of his essay by asking a series of questions. Quote, Did somebody suggest to the adult Dylan that such a specific detail would make her story more credible? Or does she really believe she remembers this train circling around the attic the same way she says she remembers Woody's whispered promises of trips to Paris and movie stardom? Kind of odd enticements to offer a seven-year-old, Moses observes, rather than a new toy or a doll. And all this apparently took place while those of us who promised to have our eyes trained on Woody were downstairs, seemingly oblivious to what was happening right above our heads. End quote. Moses Farrow's essay was a brave and important intervention in this case, and any person who wants to claim to have an informed opinion about Woody Allen's guilt or innocence really has to go to Moses' blog and read the whole piece. It isn't just that Moses boldly and baldly says that he doesn't believe his sister's story. He also offers some stark first-hand testimony about what it was like to be raised by Mia Farrow. As Moses remembers it, his own childhood was a long exercise in, quote, coaching, drilling, scripting, and rehearsing, in essence, brainwashing, end quote. As an adult, Moses Farrow went back and read the report of the Yale New Haven clinicians who had evaluated his sister's abuse claim back in 1993, and he found that certain lines in that report rang a bell with him. He was especially struck by the bit where the Yale team observed that Dylan's story had a, quote, rehearsed quality, and that she seemed to have been, quote, coached or influenced by her mother. Those conclusions, Moses writes, perfectly match my own childhood experience. Coaching, influencing, and rehearsing are three words that sum up exactly how my mother tried to raise us. End quote. After Moses had published his extremely detailed and well-argued reflections about the case, Dylan Farrow responded in a strangely non-specific way. Moses's comments, she wrote, are, like so many of the attacks on my story, irrelevant. Moses was not there for the alleged assault. As it happened, though, Moses had already anticipated and answered this line of argument in his essay. Strangers on Twitter pose me this question all the time, he had written. You weren't there to witness the assault, so how do you know it didn't happen? But how could anyone witness an assault, Moses asks, if it never happened? Nor could Moses Farrow's revelations about the non-existence of the electric train set very easily be dismissed as, quote, irrelevant. Obviously, they're relevant as hell. They give us a very concrete reason to suspect that his sister's story about the alleged abuse, while possibly or even probably sincere, is based on a false memory rather than a true one. The filmmaker Robert Whitey was one observer who recognised the importance of Moses Farrow's essay. Whitey is a key figure in the current debate about Woody Allen, if debate is the right word for such a near-unanimous display of mob ignorance. Whitey got to know Allen while making a documentary about him that came out in 2012, 
In 2014, after the sexual abuse claim had been rebooted and relaunched, Whitey stuck his neck out and published an article in the Daily Beast called The Woody Allen Allegations Not So Fast. In the years since, Whitey has distinguished himself as one of Allen's most robust and well-informed public defenders. When Moses published his revelations about the non-existence of the electric train set, Whitey issued an interesting challenge on Twitter. He challenged Dylan and Ronan Farrow, the ringleaders of the 2.0 campaign against Woody Allen, to prove their brother Moses wrong by producing a photograph of the fabled train set in the attic. In fact, Whitey said that he would settle for a photograph that simply showed that the attic in question had an electrical outlet in it. If the Farrows could produce such a photograph, Whitey pledged to donate $100,000 to a charity of their choice. Since Mia Farrow still owned the Frog Hollow house at the time, it shouldn't have been all that hard for the Farrows to relieve Whitey of his hundred grand by producing a photo of the outlet in the attic, if there was an outlet in the attic. But no photograph was furnished, and Whitey's reward money went uncollected. Whitey's challenge was no mere stunt. It underlined an important truth about this case. Those of us who doubt the claim that Alan's a child molester don't doubt it because we have an inbuilt tendency to doubt allegations of sexual abuse. We doubt it because there are particular things about this particular claim that just don't stack up. We've got legitimate and specific doubts that have to do with the very shady circumstances in which this claim arose. But Dylan Farrow, when she talks about her allegation in public, seems to be aggressively unwilling to admit that a fair-minded person might have legitimate reasons to wonder if her story is true. Her attitude seems to be, here's what I say happened, and if you don't believe me, and if you refuse to exact vengeance on Woody Allen on my behalf, then you're an apologist for a child abuser. When Gail King asked her on TV if she wished the case had gone to trial when she was seven, Dylan said, here's the thing, outside of a court of law, we do know what happened in the attic that day, I just told you. Of course, claims like this one are by their nature very difficult to prove. Every reasonable person accepts that. But the detail of the electric train set is one element of this particular allegation that could fairly easily be proved if it was true. Speaking for myself, I would have been more than ready to revisit my feeling that this whole thing is a stitch-up if Dylan Farrow had replied to Robert Whitey's $100,000 challenge by producing a photograph of the train set. But for some reason that photograph wasn't forthcoming. At another point during her interview with Gail King, Dylan said, What I don't understand is, how is this crazy story of me being brainwashed and coached more believable than what I'm saying about being sexually assaulted by my father? That might strike you as an impressive argument if all you know about this case is that Dylan accused her father of child abuse when she was seven and continues to accuse him of it now that she's in her thirties. Certainly the suggestion that Dylan was brainwashed does sound a bit implausible when you consider it in a vacuum. But if you can be bothered to acquaint yourself with the peculiar history of this case, you soon see that there are special reasons to suspect that a kind of brainwashing did occur here. You also see that the fact that the brainwashing story seems crazy or improbable is beside the point. The real question is, is the brainwashing story harder to believe or easier to believe than all the things you need to believe in order to conclude that Dylan is telling the truth. And unfortunately, you find yourself having to swallow a large number of very hard-to-swallow propositions if you want to keep believing Dylan Farrow's story. To start with, of course, you have to swallow the proposition that Woody Allen has been lying about this thing all along. By itself, that part isn't hard to believe. If the man sexually abused his own daughter, he's obviously going to lie about it. But on top of that, you have to believe that despite being a liar, Alan volunteered for and passed a polygraph test. That's harder to believe, but it's still not impossible. After all, liars have been known to pass polygraphs. But on top of that, you then have to believe that a lot of very well-credentialed psychologists and pediatricians must have made a lot of fairly serious errors in this case, if Dylan Farrow's allegation is in fact true. The team at Yale New Haven Hospital had three people on it whose whole job was to assess allegations of this kind. 
So that's three experts who must have dropped the ball for starters. And the team working for the New York Department of Social Services, it's not clear how many people were on that team, but however many there were, they all got it wrong too. Of course, experts have been known to make mistakes, but for some reason the number of experts who made mistakes keeps piling up in this case. And we're still not done counting them. We also have to throw in the two expert witnesses who testified at the custody trial that Dylan had been coached or led by her mother on the notorious videotape that Mia shot in the days following the alleged abuse incident. So that's two more experts who apparently screwed up here. And by the way, one of those experts had been hired by Mia Farrow herself. And then we have to throw in Dylan's therapist, who testified during the same hearing that she didn't believe that Dylan had been sexually abused. Already, this sounds like an unlikely number of clueless experts. The Jenga tower of stacked-up improbabilities is starting to sway. And then we have to add the psychiatrist who told New York's Department of Social Services that Alan's psychological profile was, quote, definitely not that of a sexual offender. In fact, of all the experts who have weighed in on this case, I don't know of one who has said on the record, this man committed this crime, or even one who has said, this man fits the profile of a child abuser. And as well as all the experts who seem to have got it wrong in this case, we have to remember the carefully considered remarks of Moses Farrow, who grew up under Mia Farrow's roof and was twice as old as Dylan when the alleged assault occurred and was present in the house on the day. And Moses doesn't just say, this didn't happen. He talks at length about the brainwashing, his word, that went on in the Farrow household, and he pounces on the detail of the train set, which strikes him as slam-dunk proof that his sister's story simply can't be true. So what are we supposed to do about Moses Farrow's testimony, which is lucid and reasonable, and rooted in what seem to be some very hard facts? Are we supposed to pretend his intervention never happened? Or should we add him to the long list of people in this case who are either lying or gravely wrong? For me, that's just one improbability too much. The Jenga Tower finally collapses here as far as I'm concerned. I don't just find it hard to believe that Moses Farrow is wrong, in addition to all the other people who must be wrong here. I find that it's flat out impossible to believe that on top of everything else. I find it far, far easier to believe that this whole allegation was bogus from the start. After all, you can believe that without having to believe that anyone is lying. All you have to believe is that Mia Farrow, in the heat of the Sunyi moment, sincerely but wrongly managed to convince herself that Woody Allen had sexually abused Dylan. She also very briefly seemed to believe that Allen had abused Satchel as well, but that fanciful belief never took root. But the Dylan accusation did take root, and then the situation got badly out of hand, and somewhere along the line, Dylan Farrow seems to have developed a false memory of the incident that feels to her exactly like a real memory. No doubt this makes her a victim of a kind, but whatever it is she's a victim of, Woody Allen was not the perpetrator. That, I believe, is the true story of what happened here, because I find the alternative hypothesis not just hard to believe, but impossible to believe. And as Sherlock Holmes said, once you've eliminated the impossible, then whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. But I dare say I'm wasting my breath with all this talk of evidence. The case stopped being about evidence a long while back. In recent times, it's been all about ill-informed public opinion and the latest trends in herd philosophy. For the last couple of years, Hollywood has been full of air-headed actors and actresses lining up to say in public, Dylan, I believe you. As if a willingness to ignore evidence is the ultimate sign of virtue. The tide really started to turn in 2017 when the Me Too revolution got underway. It was terrible luck for Woody Allen that Ronan Farrow happened to be a key figure in that revolution. After Ronan published his New Yorker story about Harvey Weinstein, he made himself into an authority on the sex crimes of powerful men, and he has since used or abused that authority to argue that Woody Allen belongs in the same category as men like Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby, both of whom are proven serial rapists who assaulted a large number of extremely credible adult victims. 
in December 2017, a couple of months after Ronan published his celebrated article about Weinstein, Dylan Farrow published an op-ed for the Los Angeles Times called Why Has the Me Too Revolution Spared Woody Allen? In that article, Dylan continued to pour scorn on actors who had worked with Allen in the past, but who had so far failed to grab their flaming torch and join the lynching party. Among the recalcitrant actors named and shamed in Dylan's article were Blake Lively and Kate Winslet. On the other hand, Dylan praised a number of actors who had demonstrated their probity by bravely joining the anti-Allen pylon. It meant the world to me, she wrote, when Ellen Page said she regretted working with Allen. But as I've repeatedly said during this podcast, the theory behind that pylon is shockingly free of content or merit. All the supposed evidence against Allen simply melts into the air when you're troubled to look at it. And I'm afraid that this rule doesn't stop applying when you look closely at the various public pronouncements that Dylan Farrow and her younger brother Ronan have made about this affair ever since they deliberately shoved it back out into the social media spotlight a few years ago. If Woody Allen was really guilty, you would expect the contributions of Dylan and Ronan Farrow to be consistent, measured, dignified, and free of questionable claims and elaborations. You'd expect them to be bulletproof. You'd expect the Farrows to behave like people who confidently occupy the moral high ground and have truth on their side and don't need to bend facts or cut corners to make their case. But they don't behave like that. In fact, the more I listen to the kind of tactics and arguments that Dylan and Ronan Farrow have used in their efforts to take their father down and keep him down, the more confident I feel that he's the one in the right. Both Dylan and Ronan Farrow seem to prefer bad faith smear tactics to honest argument. Instead of talking soberly about the evidence, they prefer to turn people against Allen by resorting to moral blackmail and public shaming. And when they do talk about the evidence, they have a tendency to distort it in small but telling ways. Here's a quote from an article that Ronan Farrow wrote about the case. I believe my sister. This was always true as a brother who trusted her, and even at five years old was troubled by our father's strange behaviour around her. End quote. But Ronan Farrow wasn't five years old when his sister was allegedly assaulted. He was four. So what made him say he was five? An innocent slip of the pen? Possibly, but if it was a mistake, it's interesting that he didn't accidentally make himself a year younger than he really was. Instead, he accidentally made himself a year older, thus making it sound slightly more plausible that he was old enough to have been, quote, troubled by his father's behaviour around his sister. It's well enough known that Ronan Farrow was a precocious, doogie Hauser-like child. Indeed, he hasn't been above reminding people of this fact himself during some of his more preening public appearances. Even so, it's a rare four-year-old who has the capacity to be troubled by his father's supposedly strange behaviour, and it's a bold adult who would seriously claim to have accurate memories about what he thought and believed at the age of four. If the age is bumped up to five, the suggestion becomes slightly easier to believe, but even after Ronan Farrow has tweaked the factual record in this way, I still submit that this particular claim sounds like well, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a lie, but it certainly sounds like self-serving bunkum. Mind you, Ronan Farrow isn't just here to tell us what he believed when he was five, or rather four. More importantly, he goes on in the same article, I've approached the case as an attorney and a reporter and found her allegations to be credible. But any ethical reporter or attorney in Ronan Farrow's position would have instantly recused himself from this case, because Farrow has an obvious conflict of interest here that might well cause him to take a distorted view of the facts, if the facts don't happen to be on his side. Indeed, Ronan Farrow's inability to be accurate and honest about this case is on show in the very sentence I've just quoted when he refers to Dylan's allegations, as in, I found her allegations to be credible. But there has only ever been just one allegation here, and as for its credibility... An honest reporter or attorney would have to admit that this particular allegation doesn't lie on the more impressive end of the credibility spectrum. We're talking about one accuser, supported by no witnesses, 
talking about what she claims to remember happening to her when she was seven. None of that necessarily means that the allegation is untrue, but we have to be honest about the nature of the claim. And if we're being honest about it, we surely have to admit that this case doesn't really belong in the Me Too file. As the man who broke the Harvey Weinstein story, Ronan Farrow obviously knows that the Me Too movement was all about highly credible adult witnesses talking about things that had happened to them when they were adults. The attempt to portray Dylan Farrow's allegation as a straightforward Me Too case has always seemed more than a little disingenuous. In fact, the Farrows had already tried a version of this move even before the Me Too movement was launched. Remember Ronan's tweet during the Golden Globes, the one about how a woman publicly confirmed that Alan molested her at age seven. What exactly does Ronan Farrow think he means by the word confirmed there? Whether you're a seven-year-old girl or a grown woman, you can't confirm your own allegation. You can only repeat it. So confirmed seems like a strange and even misleading word to use in this context, especially if you like to portray yourself, as Ronan Farrow certainly does like to portray himself, as a fastidious, rule-respecting attorney and reporter. As long as I'm out on a limb here, I'm going to inch out a little further. I'm going to suggest that Dylan Farrow herself, in her various public utterances about this case, has also exhibited a certain tendency towards inaccuracy and bad faith. As I said in part one of this podcast, if all Dylan Farrow did in this case was say that Woody Allen assaulted her, if she simply stuck to her personal story and never strayed beyond it, it would be impossible to argue with her, and it would also be a bit tasteless. But that's not all she does. She keeps calling out actors and actresses by name, and keeps trying to use her perceived moral clout to bully them into denouncing Alan and swearing never to work with him again. Also, she keeps insisting that we have much more to go on in this case than her own personal testimony. She keeps asserting that the historical record somehow supports her claim that Alan molested her. As she says, quote, I continue to be an adult woman making a credible assertion unchanged for two decades, backed up by evidence. But when Dylan tries to show that her assertion is backed up by evidence, she has an unfortunate tendency to massage the evidence in her own favour, and sometimes she very aggressively says things that are demonstrably untrue. At best, this means that she's underinformed about what the established facts of her own case actually are. At worst, it means she's deliberately set out to mislead people who are less familiar with the evidence than she is. I can't claim to know which of these explanations is the right one, but to get a sense of Dylan's rather free and easy approach to the facts, let's break down a sample passage from the article she wrote for the LA Times. Here's what she says, quote, Alan denies my allegations, but this is not a he-said-child-said situation. Alan's pattern of inappropriate behaviour, putting his thumb in my mouth, climbing into bed with me in his underwear, constant grooming and touching, was witnessed by friends and family members. At the time of the alleged assault, he was in therapy for his conduct towards me. Three eyewitnesses substantiated my account, including a babysitter who saw Alan with his head buried in my lap after he had taken off my underwear. Alan refused to take a polygraph administered by the Connecticut State Police. End quote. Obviously all that sounds terrible for Woody Allen, but if you dare to subject this passage to a bit of scrutiny, you'll find yet again that all the terrible-sounding anti-Allen factoids and talking points simply melt into the air. In fact, in the four sentences in which Dylan Farrow attempts to demonstrate that this is more than a he-said-she-said said situation, she manages to say four things that are either completely untrue or at the very least seriously misleading. For one thing, it simply isn't true to say that Woody Allen refused to take a polygraph administered by the Connecticut State Police. In fact, they never asked him to take one. He had voluntarily taken one already, and he had passed it. The test was administered by a man called Paul Miner, who had previously served as the chief polygrapher for the FBI. The results of his examination were passed on to the Connecticut police, and Miner then flew to Connecticut to discuss those results with the investigators. The bottom line on the polygraph issue is that Woody Allen voluntarily took a polygraph and passed it, and when his lawyers challenged Mia Farrow to take one too, she declined. 
What about the claim that Woody Allen buried his head in Dylan's lap after he had, quote, taken off my underwear? Again, that sounds terrible for Allen, but as we saw last week, the head in the lap story has to be placed somewhere in the grey area between the ambiguous and the downright dubious. And as for the suggestion that Alan had, quote, taken off Dylan's underwear, well, that's a new one, and there's no support for it in any of the contemporary accounts. True, a babysitter noticed late on the day of the alleged assault that Dylan wasn't wearing any underpants, but nobody thought that that was a big deal at the time. At the custody hearing, Mia's friend Casey Pascal testified that at one point that afternoon, she'd heard Mia ask Dylan where her underpants were, and that Dylan had replied, that they were wet. Also, there's a mention of the underwear in an affidavit from a nanny of Mia Farrow's called Monica Thompson, who was present when Mia shot parts of the notorious videotape on which she quizzed Dylan about what, if anything, Woody Allen had done to her. According to a UPI report published at the time, Thompson testified, quote, I recall Miss Farrow saying to Dylan at that time, Dylan, what did Daddy do? Did he tell you to take your underwear off? Dylan appeared not to be interested, Monica Thompson recalled. And that's the end of her quote. So far then, Dylan Farrow has managed to push out two downright false claims in the space of two sentences. What about her suggestion that at the time of the alleged assault, Woody Allen was, quote, in therapy for his conduct towards me? This is half true at best, and the part of it that's true isn't true in the sense that Dylan Farrow implies. Actually, it was the young Dylan herself who was in therapy. Mia had started sending her to a child psychologist, partly because she was concerned that Alan was paying more attention to his own three children, including Dylan, than he paid to the children Mia had adopted during her previous relationship. Alan attended some of those therapy sessions, as did Mia, but Dylan was the one who was in therapy. And Dylan's therapist, incidentally, was the same one who testified at the custody trial that she didn't believe Dylan had been sexually abused, and that Alan's interest in the child, while inappropriately intense, was in no way sexual. So much for Dylan Farrow's claim that Alan was, quote, in therapy for his conduct towards her. By the way, a year after writing her LA Times article, Dylan inflated this claim even further beyond the realm of documented fact by asserting on Twitter that Alan was, quote, in therapy for his unhealthy fixation on my body. Remember, this is the person who tells us that her story hasn't changed over the course of two decades, but some parts of her story have changed. In 2017, we're told that Alan was in therapy for his conduct towards Dylan. In 2018, we hear that he was in therapy for his unhealthy fixation on her body. So which was it? In fact, as we've seen, it was neither, because it was Dylan who was in therapy, not Alan. And Dylan's therapist, when asked at the custody trial about the nature of Alan's interest in his daughter, had said, quote, I did not see it as sexual. I'm afraid that when I hear Dylan Farrow take these sorts of liberties with the historical record, I find myself wanting to ask her, if your central claim is so true, and if you sincerely believe it to be true, why do you feel the need to shore it up by saying things that are demonstrably not true? And why does your rhetoric keep intensifying? It feels a bit like you keep adding little details to your story in an effort to get people to punish your father, something he maybe didn't actually do. I feel similar rumblings of doubt when I hear Dylan assert in her LA Times article that Alan's, quote, pattern of inappropriate behaviour was witnessed by friends and family members. What friends and family members are we talking about exactly? On the LA Times website, the phrase witnessed by friends and family is connected by a hyperlink to a story in Vanity Fair, but there's no mention in that Vanity Fair article of any friends or family members aside from Mia Farrow herself who might conceivably have witnessed the pattern of inappropriate grooming and touching that Dylan refers to. In fact, the only people mentioned in the Vanity Fair piece who might be said to qualify as witnesses to anything, are the three women, that is the two babysitters and the French tutor, who were present at Frog Hollow on the day of the alleged assault. So while Dylan Farrow's article gives you the impression that Alan's so-called pattern of inappropriate behaviour was witnessed by a lot of different people, if you follow the hyperlink, you find that the people who witnessed this alleged pattern of behaviour 
are actually the same people Dylan mentions in her next sentence, which reads, quote, three eyewitnesses substantiated my account. But of course, we already know about these three eyewitnesses, and we know that it's putting it a bit high to say that they substantiated anything important. None of them saw the alleged incident in the attic. One of them saw the ambiguous head-in-the-lap incident, but the other two women didn't see anything at all. And in fact, one of those women, whose name was Christy Grodeke, later made a pretty damning admission to Mia's nanny, Monica Thompson. When Thompson was deposed for the custody proceedings, she recalled that she'd spoken to Grodeke a few days after the alleged assault occurred, and Grodeke was, quote, very upset. She told me that she felt guilty allowing Ms. Farrow to say those things about Mr. Allen. She said the day Mr. Allen spent with the kids, she did not have Dylan out of her sight for longer than five minutes. She did not remember Dylan being without her underwear. End quote. So that was what happened when Dylan Farrow took her best shot at Woody Allen in the LA Times back in 2017. She wound up delivering a farrago of distortions, errors, misinterpretations, and outright falsehoods. No doubt some listeners will think it's incredibly tasteless of me to put Dylan Farrow's claims under the microscope in this way. But remember, she made these claims in an article in which she explicitly compared Woody Allen to Harvey Weinstein, an article that was actually called Why Has the Me Too Revolution Spared Woody Allen? Assuming that Dylan Farrow wants that question to be answered, part of the answer would be that it's because the evidence against Harvey Weinstein was overwhelming, while the evidence against Woody Allen is disturbingly tenuous, a point that Dylan herself accidentally seemed to acknowledge in that very article by feeling the need to eke out her personal testimony with a few approximate gestures towards the factual record. Anyway, far more to the point, it's now starting to look in late 2020 as if the Me Too revolution isn't going to spare Woody Allen after all, which means that those of us who really are familiar with the evidence have an urgent obligation to talk about it in a lucid and honest way and to alert as many people as possible to the very strong likelihood that this man is being crucified for a crime that never actually occurred. But it may be too late now to turn the tide. In the three years since Dylan Farrow took aim at Woody Allen in the LA Times and discharged that choking plume of falsehood and innuendo, actors and actresses from New York to Hollywood to London have been falling over themselves to inform the world that they regret having worked with Allen in the past and will never work with him again. There have been a few noble exceptions, but on the whole, the parade of moral idiocy has been depressing to watch. Back in 2017, Dylan Farrow denounced the actress Kate Winslet for not yet having denounced Allen. Winslet held out for a few more years, but in 2020, she finally bent the knee. In an interview published earlier this year, she said, quote, What the fuck was I doing working with Woody Allen and Roman Polanski? It's unbelievable to me now how those men were held in such high regard so widely in the film industry and for as long as they were. It's fucking disgraceful. And I have to take responsibility for the fact that I worked with them both. End quote. Now, we should bear in mind that Roman Polanski, the man that Kate Winslet puts Woody Allen in the dock with here, is a confessed and convicted statutory rapist. Also more generally, we should notice once again this nervous urge that Allen's detractors seem to keep feeling to lump in his alleged crime with the proven crimes of other men. It's almost as if people like Winslet sense deep down that Woody Allen on his own account hasn't actually done anything to justify the moral disgust about him that they urgently want to feel and display. If you think about Alan's case on its own merits for too long, he doesn't quite make the grade. But if you quickly go on to mention Polanski or Weinstein or Cosby in your next breath, then maybe some of their real and established guilt will rub off on Alan. In more ways than one, people like Kate Winslet seem to sense that there is safety in numbers. Also, it's by no means irrelevant to point out that the film Winslet did with Woody Allen was made in 2017, by which time the allegation against him had been hanging around for some 24 years. Evidently, Winslet knew about that allegation when she worked with Alan, but didn't believe it to be true. So what's happened since then to make her alter her views so radically? 
She mentions nothing that sounds like a good reason for her change of mind or heart. The only explanation she offers is that, quote, life is fucking short. Well, life is indeed fairly short, but it's not so short that you can't take 10 or 15 seconds to explain why you think a man is a child molester before you publicly denounce him as one. But the gist of Vanity Fair's article about Kate Winslet is that Winslet has now gone all woke, which in this context seems to mean that she's proud to declare that she simply believes all women and has no truck with things like reasonable explanations or objective facts. Basically, Winslet seems to have sensed which way the wind is blowing, and she's decided to add her own foul-mouthed contribution to the typhoon. In one sense, and one sense only, Kate Winslet is right. The whole thing is indeed fucking disgraceful. What she doesn't realise is that she's the one disgracing herself. Of course, she's not the only one, but the fact that she's doing it because everybody else is doing it is part of the disgrace. And the people who applaud people like Winslet for their supposed moral clarity are disgracing themselves too. Robert Whitey has said that the actors who are currently speaking out against Woody Allen will one day be as proud of their comments as those people who named names during the McCarthy era. Morally speaking, Whitey has a solid point, but I wish I could be as confident as he is that there'll be a day in the future when America will have pulled itself together to the point where it will be able to see and acknowledge what a scandal this case has been. A day when all the people who should be ashamed of themselves will be ashamed of themselves and will be ashamed of themselves for the right reasons, not the wrong ones. America's got a lot of growing up to do before that can happen. It'll have to go back to being a place where people care enough about the authority of hard facts to appreciate that Alan's guilt hasn't even remotely been proved. And it will have to go back to being a place that understands that vilifying and trashing people whose guilt hasn't been proved is not a progressive act. It's the opposite of progressive. It's medieval. In short, if America is ever going to be as ashamed of the current moment as it is of the McCarthy era, it will first have to recover its wits enough to see that the time we're living through now is indeed as morally and intellectually backward as the McCarthy years were. Instead of looking for reds under the bed, we look for misogynists or patriarchs or transphobes under there, or racists who are unconscious of their own racism or child molesters whose guilt is suggested by nothing except a single exploded allegation. At the moment, the day when the culture will generally acknowledge all this still seems a long way off, because it isn't just actors who are eagerly lining up right now to participate in this moral panic about Woody Allen. Earlier this year, Allen's autobiography was due to be issued by the publishing house Hachette. Allen is 84 years old now, the publication of his autobiography should have been the crowning moment of a very illustrious career. But as it happens, the fashionable Ronan Farrow is published by Hachette too, and when Ronan found out that Hachette would be publishing Woody Allen's book, he instantly announced that he would be cutting ties with the firm. The Hachette staff in New York then staged a walkout, not in solidarity with Woody Allen, but in solidarity with his not-very-credible accuser. For a short while, the Hachette Brass made noises about how they were a proud and serious publishing house which was in the business of publishing all sorts of diverse and challenging books, and then they announced that they wouldn't be publishing Allen's book after all. Fortunately, another firm called Skyhorse Publishing had the integrity to take the book on, but apart from that principled intervention, the story of what happened to Allen's autobiography was a truly shameful one for all concerned. Ronan Farrow behaved a bit like one of those powerful white men who are all supposed to despise, the ones born into privilege and wealth who get their way not by being right, but by petulantly throwing their weight around. The Hachette staff behaved like fools and sheep, and the Hachette executives set an atrocious precedent when they caved in to the ignorant and prejudiced objections of their workforce. In fact, the whole thing was so obviously wrong that it caused the pulp author Stephen King to make what sounded like a principled stand on Twitter. But listen to the way King phrased his objection. Quote, The Hachette decision to drop the Woody Allen book makes me very uneasy. It's not him. I don't give a damn about Mr. Allen. It's who gets muzzled next that worries me. End quote. 
Maybe Stephen King has access to information that I haven't seen, but I think we should give a very large damn about Woody Allen. Not just because he's a far more important cultural figure than King will ever be, but because he's being erased from the culture for reasons that the people who are erasing him seem to be almost proud to know next to nothing about. It's not a question of who gets muzzled next. It's a question of a man who's being tarred and feathered right now in front of our eyes for doing something that he almost certainly didn't do. Before we worry about who that happens to next, we should surely do all we can to stop the lynching that's currently going on. Stephen King doesn't seem to understand this elementary point, but that's what you get when you seek intellectual guidance from people who write novels about homicidal automobiles. Robert Whitey has said a lot of very perceptive things about this case. Let me quote one of his shrewder observations. I find it interesting, Whitey says, that the social media set keeps asking, why is Woody Allen still working in the Me Too era when so many others have been taken down? It's actually a very legitimate question with a very specific answer, Whitey goes on, but they prefer to view it as rhetorical. They don't really want to stick around for the answer because it unravels every misconception they cling to about this case. Whitey is dead right to try to insist that there's a specific answer here which can't be comprehended by people who aren't prepared to be patient, and in return for trying to point that out, Whitey has been lambasted on social media by a flock of numbskulls who have inadvertently proved his point by ignoring his invitation to be patient and specific and by stampeding back towards the comfort of the general and the rhetorical. I want to read you something that one of Whitey's critics said about him online. As you listen to this long and asinine quote, I want you to bear in mind that the woman who wrote this is a professor. A professor of media studies, mind you, but a professor nevertheless. And here's what she wrote. Quote, Whitey is engaging in victim-blaming. Whitey needs to understand that his words on this matter have real-world consequences, not just for Dylan Farrow, who is being told yet again that her experiences don't count, don't matter, don't have weight. No, his words also have consequences for those who are currently victims of sexual abuse and for all those who are survivors. He is sending a clear message. Victims are liars. Victims are not to be trusted. Don't bother telling. No one will believe you. Your words are worthless. You are worthless. Whitey's article and his attitude are part and parcel of a culture that silences victims of sexual abuse every day out of fear that no one will believe them. End quote. You can begin to wonder if America has irretrievably lost its collective mind if you spend too much time looking at the things that have been said and written online about the Woody Allen case. You can start to wonder if justice and rational thinking have got any future at all. You can begin to fear that we really have entered intellectual end times. Here, I repeat, is a card-carrying professor who suggests that if you dare to question this one very questionable allegation of child abuse, that means you're somehow saying that the whole phenomenon of child sexual abuse isn't real. By that logic, if logic is the right word for it, it's now socially impermissible to even try to defend yourself against an allegation like this one, because if you have the bad taste to suggest that your accuser isn't telling the truth, that means you're saying that every real victim of child abuse in human history is a liar and is worthless. This is such obvious nonsense that there's almost no way to reply to it except to say that it is obvious nonsense. And if people can't already see that for themselves, I doubt they're suddenly going to see it now just because a humble podcaster has pointed it out. In truth, Robert Whitey was doing the very opposite of victim-blaming when he articulated his very considered position about this case. He was arguing that he didn't believe Dylan Farrow to be a victim at all. He wasn't suggesting that her experiences don't count, don't matter, and don't have weight. He was suggesting that her purported experiences did not actually happen, and he was defending that conclusion rationally by making detailed reference to the evidence. And really, we are going to need to be able to keep doing that if we intend to go on having a civilization. If we make an accusation that can have the effect of destroying a person's life and legacy and reputation, we do have a right to expect that the accusation will be listened to and taken seriously, but we have no right to demand that it will be 
believed without being scrutinised? Well, maybe we do. Here's something the actor Peter Sarsgaard said when somebody stuck a mic in his face and asked him to explain his decision never to work with Woody Allen again. He said, quote, I believe people when they say I was assaulted or I was molested because I don't think you really have any other choice because if we start not believing people, it's a slippery slope, end quote. Think about that for a moment. If we start not believing people, it's a slippery slope. I think I can see a bit of a flaw in Sarsgaard's argument there. You see, Dylan Farrow says this thing did happen, but Woody Allen says it didn't happen. So we can't solve this particular conundrum simply by believing people. We have to pick which person to believe. Much as I'd like to be able to believe both parties here, that isn't possible. But of course what Sarsgaard really means is that we have to believe the right people. And who decides who the right people to believe are? Well, the other right people get to decide that. And apparently Sarsgaard thinks he's one of those right people himself. Again, I think I see a flaw in this system. In fact, to borrow Sarsgaard's own metaphor, I think we really would be on a slippery slope if we were to replace the rule of law with the Sarsgaard system. And at the bottom of the slippery slope would be a kind of tyranny. A tyranny of the idiotic. A tyranny of people who openly admit that they just don't care about nasty things like evidence. One thing I notice about the handful of actors who have had the courage not to denounce Woody Allen is that, for the most part, they're older actors. Certainly they're all smarter actors. They're actors who have minds of their own and aren't afraid to use them. Javier Bardem has said, quote, I am very shocked by this sudden treatment. Judgments in the states of New York and Connecticut found him innocent. I don't agree with the public lynching that he's been receiving. End quote. And good for Bardem. Other actors who deserve an honourable mention here are Alec Baldwin and Cherry Jones and Scarlett Johansson. These actors haven't just had the moral courage not to join the anti-Allen Lynch mob. They've had the intellectual decency to explain exactly why they believe what they believe about this case which is far more than I can say for most of the actors who have chosen to join the pylon. After working with Alan on the film A Rainy Day in New York, the actor Timothy Chalamet was given a hard time by the social justice Stasi, and he buckled. And after he buckled, he released an unintentionally hilarious statement in which he tried to let everyone know how courageous and virtuous his decision to buckle had been. I don't want to profit from my work on the film, he explained. I want to be worthy of standing shoulder to shoulder with the brave artists who are fighting for all people to be treated with the respect and dignity they deserve. I'm not sure what Chalamet thinks the word bravery is doing in there. The only brave artists in this story are the ones who have elected not to denounce Alan, despite the overwhelming mob pressure to do so. By definition, there haven't been all that many of these authentically brave artists, so they haven't been able to enjoy the frisson of getting to stand shoulder to shoulder with a whole crowd of other people. On the other hand, they're right. And by the way, what in Christ's name does Timothy Chalamet think he's doing using the word dignity, as in, we must fight for all people to be treated with the respect and dignity they deserve? What does he think the word dignity means? If I wanted to pick one word that summed up the goons rodeo that people like Chalamet are falling over each other to join right now, it would be the word undignified. If anyone can be said to have conducted himself with dignity through the whole thing, that person would be Woody Allen himself. He has calmly denied this allegation at every turn. When his name was cleared back in the early 90s, he didn't make a big public deal about it, he just got on with his work. And when the charge was baselessly revived a few years back, he kept trying to get on with his work, but that's becoming increasingly hard for him to do because the acting community is now more or less united in no longer wanting to work with him, and actors who have worked with him in the past are being bullied into announcing that they regret this grave moral lapse and will never let it happen again. I can just about see why a young and fairly clueless individual like Timothy Chalamet would find it advisable to go with the numbers and do that. After all, the whole job of an actor is based on repeating lines written by other people. 
But please, if you're going to join the lynch mob without devoting so much as a sentence to explaining why you've suddenly changed your mind, I don't think you should be allowed to pretend that you're taking a principled stand. If you're going to act like a coward, please don't compound the offence by pretending that you're being brave. If you're going to add your weight to a grotesque exercise in mob injustice, please don't pretend you're interested in justice or know what the concept even means. Woody Allen is 84 now. Unless the tide in this case turns pretty fast, he looks set to end his life as a reviled figure. And Allen himself now seems to be resigned to that fate. Near the end of his recent autobiography, he writes, quote, Not believing in a hereafter, I really can't see any practical difference if people remember me as a film director or a pedophile or at all. Sadly, Alan isn't saying that for effect. This seems to be what he really feels. Alan is an old-fashioned and slightly strange guy. He's not into posturing or exhibitionism or saying things he doesn't really believe. But if the culture does end up remembering Woody Allen as a pedophile, it won't just be his tragedy, it will be ours too. And the scary thing is, I'm not sure if the tragedy can be turned around now. I don't see how else Alan's story is going to end, except in the way it appears to be ending now. I can think of a few hypothetical things that would break the stalemate, but none of them seems very likely. One would be if new and credible evidence was to emerge that established beyond doubt that Woody Allen really did commit this supposed offence, or committed some other offence like it. If that happened, it would in one sense be a relief, because it would mean that Allen hasn't been persecuted and shunned and covered with bile for no good reason. It would mean that the know-nothing postmodern lynch mob got this one right, if only by accident. But I don't think anything like that is going to happen. If corroborating evidence of Alan's guilt was ever going to surface, it would surely have surfaced by now. So what other hypothetical event would resolve this thing once and for all? Robert Whitey has pointed out that, under Connecticut law, Dylan Farrow currently has the option of suing Alan in civil court. If that happened, everybody concerned could be put under oath, a judge could rule on the facts, and the rest of us could then accept the verdict once and for all and move on. As Whitey points out, there's nothing stopping Dylan Farrow from suing Alan for everything he has, except perhaps for the fact that she knows she wouldn't win. So how else is this going to end? Is Dylan Farrow suddenly going to withdraw her accusation? Is Mia Farrow going to admit that the whole thing got out of hand back in 1992? I don't see those things happening either. As for Alan himself, there's not a great deal more he can conceivably do to prove his innocence. He's already been exonerated several times, and nobody seems to remember or care. His name is Mud, even though it's been comprehensively cleared. So what exactly is he supposed to do about that? He could sue for defamation, and arguably he should, but if he was going to do that, he would have done it a long time ago. He seems to have decided a while back that he was going to take the high road on this and look where that's got him. So if this whole wicked injustice is ever going to be undone, I doubt it will be because any of the principals decides to admit that he or she is in the wrong. And it won't be because any fresh evidence comes to light. The evidence is already there. There's not going to be any more of it. There's already more than enough of it. And if more than enough evidence is not enough evidence for us, then we should stop pretending that we care about evidence at all. The case against Alan is a bit like the current craze for claiming that 2 plus 2 doesn't necessarily equal 4. Nothing is ever going to prove that claim is true, because it isn't. On the other hand, no future revelation is ever going to prove it false either. The proof that it's false is already available in abundance, and the people who refuse to accept it are effectively announcing that they have no interest in playing by the rules of reason and logic. That's really what's going to have to happen here if our deep confusion about the Woody Allen question is ever going to be resolved. We're going to have to decide as a society that we do care about evidence again and about reason and fairness because all the evidence we need to make up our minds about Woody Allen is right where it's always been. It's right in front of our eyes. All we have to do if we want to know the truth about this case 
is remember what our eyes are for and recover the use of our brains and our backbones. And that's all I want to say about this case. But before I wrap up, I want to credit some of the sources I've used to put this podcast together. It seems especially important to give credit where it's due in this case, because frankly there isn't a whole lot of credit to go around. In fact, it was only when I decided that I'd better credit my sources that I noticed a very striking thing that they all have in common. With one exception, all the best writing and thinking that's been done about the Woody Allen affair has been done on blogs and on YouTube channels and in other forms of new media. In other words, very little of my information here has come from what used to be called respectable sources. So far, nobody has done a long investigative piece for The Atlantic, say, or for The New Yorker, that has dared to examine the merits of the current moral panic about Woody Allen. Vanity Fair has taken the side of the Farrow family in a couple of notoriously tendentious articles, but no publication of equal or greater prestige has seen fit to expose the hollowness of the case against Allen. This strikes me as a worrying failure. Surely America's best magazines and newspapers should care deeply about the rule of law, which is as vital to the functioning of a healthy liberal democracy as a free and honest press is. Surely they should care when a man who's almost certainly innocent is crucified by a mob whose contempt for fact is every bit as profound as Donald Trump's. But the mainstream media seems to be nervous about examining the facts of this case, which strikes me as a clear sign of how craven and how captured the American press currently is. It seems especially weak of the New Yorker to ignore this story, given that it was the home of Woody Allen's prose pieces for so many years. At best, the mainstream media has been utterly useless throughout this whole affair. At worst, it's been complicit in the lynching. Fortunately, a handful of citizen researchers have taken up the slack, and they've written about this case diligently and honestly on their websites and blogs. Robert Whitey is the best of these citizen truth-tellers. His essay for The Daily Beast, called The Woody Allen Allegations Not So Fast, is so far the best and pretty much the only mainstream attempt to examine the merits of the supposed case against Allen. Also, Whitey has published some valuable stuff about this on his blog, which is called This Mortal Coil. The other important blog contribution was, of course, that long essay by Moses Farrow, entitled A Son Speaks Out. There's an excellent and very long YouTube video about the case called By the Way, Woody Allen is Innocent, which was made by the Californian cartoonist and writer Rick Worley. There's also a guest article by Worley that's published on Robert Whitey's blog. The writer Justin Levine has published a useful series of pieces on Medium.com. A blogger who blogs under the name Nadia Lodijo has compiled a lot of very useful information on her pages. And finally, there's a lot of useful material at the website WoodyAllenMobLynching.com. Of course, I'm not saying that I agree with every word these people have written about the case, and I can't say I'm always happy with their taste in fonts and web page design, but it has to be said that the quality of their thinking and their general respect for fair play and intellectual decency put the efforts of the legacy media to shame. Also, given that I've been suggesting that the internet has largely functioned as a giant engine of injustice and falsehood in this affair, it does seem necessary to qualify that by adding that there are still some people online who are interested in real justice as opposed to pseudo-justice, and who are ready to pursue the truth unconditionally at a time when America's traditional media outlets increasingly seem to be deciding, with the help of the folks on Twitter, that conditional truth-seeking is very much the way of the future. So that's all that I have to say about this very sad affair, and I hope that what I've said will make some kind of difference. Thanks for listening. If you like what I do and you want to help keep this show going, you can support it at paypal.me forward slash goodbadbogus. Until next time, I'm David Free, and you've been listening to The Good, The Bad, and The Bogus.